The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to this afternoon's session of Socialism 2010. Today's speaker will be Jeff Bell. He's from in the ISO in Lansing, Michigan, and um, teaches in the Department of Teacher Education at Michigan State. And this session is entitled "From Marx to Lenin: Self-Determination and National Liberation." And I'm your I'm your chair, Liz, um, from Denton, Texas. Okay, um, so uh, Workers of the World Unite is probably the most recognizable slogan in Marxist politics. Um, it's a slogan based on the understanding that working people share objective and social interests that give them far more in common across country to country, across culture to culture, than anything that binds them to their own country or their um, own culture. Yet this talk um, is all about the right of nations to self-determination. This is a political position that stipulates that all oppressed nations have um, the right to separate, to secede from oppressor nations and set up their own nation state uh, if, they, if they choose to do so. It's a right that in practice means working people separating from one another along national lines. So, Workers of the World Unite, the right of nations to self-determination. Um, these two principles on the surface seem to stand in direct opposition to one another. And to be sure, various political movements over the last 150 years have misinterpreted and manipulated um, both of the slogans to serve um, their own limited political goals. In fact, however, these two, these two slogans are not contradictory. In fact, the only way for working people uh, internationally to unite in the sort of political movements that can bring about socialism is if they're free to do so on an uncoerced, voluntary basis. That is, the right of nations to self-determination is the precondition for any international unity among working class people. So that's the argument, um, and my job in this talk is to help explain why. So I'm going to do so in three broad parts. Um, for about the first half of the talk, I'm going to sketch out really how uh, Marxist politics developed a position around um, um, the right of nations to self-determination, starting with Marx and Engels themselves. And just a word about terminology. Um, there's lots of different slogans and, and phrases they could use. Uh, national liberation, national oppression, self-determination. I'm going to collapse that all into the, all under the title of the national question. Um, in the second part of the talk, I'll focus on Lenin and his theoretical and, and practical contributions, and then I'll um, close with a couple things about these particular theories for, for today. So, um, to get started, there are a number of fronts on which Marxism is um, pretty routinely criticized for being too simplistic, too economistic, for reducing all social questions to the question of class. I, I would argue that the national question is probably the first, um, one of the first fronts for this line of, of critique. I don't have time to get into the extent of, of this criticism of Marxism, but let's just say it comes from all directions. Um, from those openly hostile to Marxism, who really kind of pour through some of the original documents to um, put together a whole series of quotes that prove some sort of inter uh, international, some sort of original sin, uh, but also to those who are more sympathetic to socialist politics, who just kind of wish the Marxists would clean up their act around the national question. So to help respond to this critique, I'm going to um, kind of sketch out really um, the, the, the Marxist approach to the national question around six specific moments or, or stages, I guess, if you want to put it like that. And the first is the revolutionary upheaval in Central Europe um, in 1848. 
This, of course, is when the Communist Manifesto first appears. And for many critics of Marxism on the national question, it is this document, the Manifesto, um, that has the, um, the original sin. For example, in their, calls, uh, in their call for workers of the world to unite, Marx and Engels state really clearly that the proletariat has no nation. Further, in their comments about colonialism in the manifesto, which actually are already very limited um, um, to begin with, they seem to praise Western colonization. They write, quote, The bourgeoisie draws all, even the most barbarian nations, into civilization. The cheap prices of its commodities are the heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls. It compels all nations, on pain of extinction, to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It compels them to introduce what it calls civilization into their midst, that is, to become bourgeois themselves. In a word, it creates a world after its own image. Now, passages like this are invoked to make all sorts of claims about Marx and Engels and, by extension, Marxism and socialism as being indifference to national oppression at best um, and, at worst, outright Eurocentric and racist. And certainly, I think we can all agree that language like backwards and barbarians um, doesn't really help anymore, um, if it ever did, to describe different types of societies, even if they were terms widely used in their day. Um, but the more important point is to put these types of co- uh, passages in context. And when we do that, we see that uh, Marx and Engels are talking about, in general terms, that capitalism is an advance over feudalism in other pre-capitalist societies, um, as much in North America and Europe as um, in less developed part of the world, uh, parts of the world. So clearly, in no way are they singling, singling out Western colonization of Asia as some sort of advance over um, supposedly backwards societies. Um, nevertheless, we still can't say the manifesto presents any kind of complete theory of the national question um, based on historical materialism. Um, in fact, uh, even though Marx and Engels develop a position over um, the next couple of decades, Michael Lodi is right to argue that the remarks are less about a, a big theory than really using the basic tenets of Marxism to respond to specific historical developments and rebellions and, and all the rest of it. The second, I guess, moment I'll talk about is the aftermath of, of these revolutions in 1848. Um, they all failed. Um, generally, and were followed by a period of reaction that lasted throughout most, much of the 1850s in Central Europe. Making sense of why these revolutions failed was, of course, a key political task. And it's here where Engels, in particular, um, gets into a good deal of theoretical and political trouble. Um, the revolutions I'm talking about here are, on the one hand, efforts to unify both Germany and Italy um, and to create sort of uh, bourgeois nation-states the way that had already happened in the, in the France and Britain and the U.S., but also the Hungarian struggle against the Austrian Empire and the Polish struggle against the Russian Tsar. Um, like I said, in all four cases, these, these um, efforts failed, um, particularly in, in, in Aust- the Austrian and Russian um, crushing of, of um, the Hungarian and Polish uh, uh, movements. The, 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 those imperial armies recruited large numbers of, of groups called the, the South Slavs, Czechs and Slovaks and Croats, um, etc., to, to join in, to beat back those revolutionary movements. The Engels picks up on this composition of these imperial armies um, um, to argue that the groups like the South Slavs, he actually called them national refuse, um, would always side with the counter-revolution as they did in 1848. Now to come to this conclusion, Engels actually resurrects a pretty um, ridiculous division that Hegel, a German philosopher, had made between what he called historic and non-historic nations. And the distinction isn't really important, but the point is that Engels turned toward um, really primordial explanations of nationalism. That is, an explanation that says that nations have been distinct and have existed for thousands of years, unchanged, and really predate the emergence of class society. This primordial definition of nationalism relies on psychology um, to explain 
part of the anon on historical materialism to explain why individuals tend to identify with, say, one nation over another, with one culture or language over another. Um, Engels got it wrong. He got it very wrong. And he actually held on to some of these ideas um, really throughout the 1860s. The third moment I'll talk about is also during the 1850s, but it's actually in the colonies, particularly in India and parts of China, where a series of, uh, of, of rebellions had taken place. Um, there's a caricature about Marx um, that he was indifferent um, to or silent about the national question, but in fact he actually wrote a great deal about these particular rebe- rebellions in uh, India and in China in the 1850s. In these writings, um, Kevin Anderson, this actually awesome new book is up on, in, in the Haymarket tables, um, discusses um, these writings. Uh, Marx is actually really open and transparent about his own ideas about the national question are, were changing and needed to change in order to advance working class politics and the socialist movement. Now, I don't, don't, don't have time to get into the full details of what he wrote about India and China at this time, but the point is that both in his public and private writings, uh, Marx makes two important developments uh, changes in how he thought about the national question. The first is that he changes his emphasis on, on that fact that capitalism is an historic advance over feudalism and other pre-class soci- pre-capitalist societies. Uh, particularly when thinking about writing about Asia, he recognizes that capitalism, particularly British and French colonialism, had uh, brought an immense devastation to that part of the world. Um, second, he begins to see uh, national liberation movements in terms of self-determination. Not just um, that national movements have the ability to kick out the colonizers, which they do, uh, but also that there is could have an impact on working classes within the oppressor nations. Now, the fourth kind of moment I'll talk about is the 1860s. In fact, um, the 1860s marks a particular turning point, I guess, in how Marx and Engels thought about the national question. And again, these, these um, were in response to developments, to concrete historical developments, particularly a renewed rebellion in Ireland against English oppression in Poland against, um, <clears throat> sorry, against uh, Russian czarism and, of course, the Civil War in the U.S. and slavery. The last two issues in particular became, for, for Marx, um, in some ways, a, a litmus test that he would use in arguments uh, with other political traditions that came together to form the First International in 1864. Now, with respect to Ireland, Marx changed from an earlier position where he thought, at best, Ireland might have some sort of autonomy, but still stay somehow connected to Britain. And he changed to a position where he argued that the liberation of the Irish was based first on an agrarian revolution in Ireland, but also also was the precondition for the liberation of the English working classes, working class. He wrote, quote, ultimately England today is seeing a repetition of what happened on a massive scale in Rome. A nation that enslaves another forges its own chains. Marx and Engels developed a, a similar analysis of Poland as well. Poland had been, again been partitioned between um, uh, imperial powers after 1815. Um, the western part went to Prussia, the eastern part to Russia. Um, and again, in response to developments in Poland, uh, Marx and Engels not only understood the liberation of Poland as a prerequisite to um, struggle in Germany and Russia, but also especially Marx made the question of Poland, like I said earlier, something of a litmus test um, for the European left of this era, calling it, quote, an external thermometer of revolution in Europe. Um, for Engels' uh, part, he wrote this about Poland. He said, he wrote, um, quote, a people that oppresses and others cannot emancipate itself. The power that leads to the oppression of others ultimately and always turns back against itself. As long as Russian soldiers remain in Poland, the Russian people cannot free themselves either politically or socially. 
So these early stages of, of again, of, of Marx and Engels writing about the national question don't leave us with a full-on theory, um, definitely. Um, but in responding to these, these concrete historical mo- movements and developments, um, they do, Marx and Engels do sketch out some basic principles about um, what Lodi calls the dialectical relationship between self-determination and working-class internationalism. So the, I guess that the next major development in, in, in the Marxist position on the national question takes us up another three, three decades, but also moves us over to Austria. Um, another, a number of factors led to um, a dramatic growth of the working class in Austria from the 1890s onwards, and of course along with it, um, growth of a social democratic or socialist um, party. And in fact, a number of the leading, Mar- of leading Marxist theorists, um, however debatable their ideas may be, um, came from Austria. Austria at this time was an empire that stretched from what today is Austria all the way east to Galicia, which is now part of um, uh, modern Ukraine and Romania, and as far south as Bosnia and Croatia. Um, this tremendous national linguistic diversity within the Austrian Empire imposed a whole series of important questions on Austrian socialists. Austrian Marxism in general thought of the national question in what they considered to be cultural terms, um, language and customs, uh, particular customs. Um, for example, at the party congress in 1899 in Brunn, which is actually now part of the Czech Republic, uh, the party voted on a position that called for, um, quote, cultural national autonomy um, for each national minority in the empire. The principle was generally a territorial one. Um, within each territory in the empire, the dominant national group would have the right to organize affairs to their choosing, um, but remain part of Austria. Here, the goal was the preservation of the multinational state. Now, in theoretical terms, Otto Bauer took this position really one step further. And I would argue his ideas are like a precursor to a lot of the uh, crude precursor to um, identity politics. And that's that way of understanding social and national and cultural and linguistic oppression that's dominated, um, in, in, at least in, in, in the U.S. for the last 30 or 40 years, um, 30 years. He, Bob Bauer had two main arguments. He, first, he wrote that he argued that nationalism wasn't a principle of territory, uh, but rather a psychology or personality. He described what he called national characteristics that each you know, national group had, um, which led, let's say, Bosnians um, to perceive the same set of objective experiences in fundamentally different ways than, say, Hungarians in the Austrian Empire. Secondly, he tried to argue a history of the nation-state um, really in the same way that Marx developed a history of class societies. Um, for Bauer, national culture was a category um, as essential to human history as was class. In fact, socialism for Bauer would, would bring about the fullest realization of each national culture. In practice, though, Bauer's ideas meant that national groups had the right to establish their own institutions, let's say schools, um, not only in the regions where they formed the majority, but also anywhere else in the empire where they happened to live. Um, now, the first half of the plan doesn't sound so bad, right? Um, where Czechs are the majority, have lived for centuries or what have you, um, they should have some sort of autonomy from Vienna. Um, to organize life as they see fit, right? Um, but, but the principle for Bauer also applied everywhere else in the empire, where significant enough members of a particular national group lived. Um, so in a multinational, multilingual city like Vienna, for example, Bauer's plan actually meant segregating the population according to national lines. Over here, German schools taught in German for the Germans. Over there, Czech schools in Czech for the Czechs. Over there, Hungarian schools for the Hungarians, um, etc. Um, so that, that's, that's one kind of big mistake around the national question. The opposite direction is, is the sixth thing I'll say about a, 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 how Marxists developed a position on it, and that's Rosa Luxemburg um, and, and her um, theory of, of the national question. It was as equally wrong as Bauer's, but a mistake in the opposite um, direction. 
And in fairness, she was building a revolutionary socialist movement in an entirely different context, not in the heart of an empire the way Bauer was in Vienna, but rather in Poland, an oppressed nation torn between two um, hostile empires. Moreover, the socialist movement in Poland was increasingly splitting over the national question, with a growing majority um, leading toward overtly nationalist politics. Also, at the founding meeting of the Russian Social Democratic Party in 1903, delegates voted to support the right of Poland to self-determination, that is, to secede from Russia if they chose to. Luxembourg viewed this vote as only adding to the nationalism in Poland. Um, so taken together, Pol- uh, Poland, Luxembourg um, really argued right to the end of her life against the right of national self-determination. Her argument rested on three important mistakes. Um, the first one was economic. Um, she argued that since the Polish economy was so um, dependent on Russia, is that real independence was impossible. An independent Poland, for her, would continue to be economically dependent on Russia and therefore also politically dependent. Um, second, she viewed the nation as a purely cultural phenomenon. Um, that is, she failed to see how questions about nationalism and national oppression can have a political dynamic to them that really open up new arenas for, um, can open up arenas for struggle. And third, she argued that that a particular stage of capitalism where the bourgeoisie leads progressive revolutions to get rid of feudal powers and set up a liberal um, republic, um, that that era of capitalism had passed. Therefore, nationalism in in current-day Poland um, of the middle classes and ruling classes could only ever be reactionary. Now, she's right to attack that kind of nationalism, but in doing so, failed really to see the, the, the potential of national aspirations, democratic potential of national aspirations of workers and peasants. Now, the final point to make about Luxembourg's position is that she didn't just wage this argument in Poland. In fact, um, she was pretty fierce in arguing with the Bolsheviks in Russia against their support of Polish self-determination. Like I said earlier, for Luxembourg, um, Russian support of Polish self-determination only aided um, nationalism in Poland, and for her, that set the movement back altogether. And I think it's because the, um, the tenacity of arguments that she received a lot of ire from Lenin, which I'll get into in a second. So really, these kind of six different moments give a sense of how Marx and Engels really developed some positions around the national question, and the two really f- uh, bl- uh, full-blown theories about the national question that were each in their own way wrong. Um, Turning to Lenin now, um, the, the first thing to say is that it, it is particularly astonishing to me that so many people continue to argue that Marxism has had little to say about the national question. Um, it, it, people say that and they clearly have no idea what they're talking about, um, particularly with Lenin, um, because we can see with him a prolonged and intense dedication to the topic, starting with his writings in 1903, beginning to debate the Austrians in 1912, and then really a period from 1914 to 1917 um, in which he was you know, prolific. Um, part of this is knowing that Lenin wrote about imperialism and national liberation as two distinct topics. Definitely, they're in different pamphlets, different you know, writings, but he meant for them to be read side by side. So, for example, in the notebooks he created when writing about uh, his, his pamphlet on imperialism, he generated almost 800 pages of notes. But the last you know, few hundred of those notes, pages of those notes, are all about national liberation and um, self-determination. In fact, Lenin's position on self-determination is really one of his primary theoretical contributions to, um, to Marxism. So I'll talk about Lenin's contributions in five parts. I'm going like bit by bit because there's a lot of information, so I'm trying to mark things so, you don't get, um, so I don't get lost in along you. Um, so the first is his understanding uh, of, of a really contradictory relationship between capitalism and nationalism. He writes this. He writes, Developing capitalism knows two historical tendencies in the national question. The first is the awakening of national life and national movements, the struggle against all national oppression, and the creation of national states. 
The second is the development and growing frequency of international intercourse in every form, the breakdown of national barriers, the creation of the international unity of capital, economic life in general, politics, science, etc. So with, with this term, awakening of national life, is referring to um, the, 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 or, the emergence of the, the nation-state um, as capital, capitalism first developed in Western Europe. Um, and his 1914 polemic against Luxembourg on the national um, question, Lenin describes this first period uh, as really bookended by the French Revolution of 1789 and then on the other side, the unification of Germany and Italy in 1871. We can squabble over the dates, but the pattern he's talking about is, is accurate. Um, simply, the nation state has proven um, itself to be the most efficient means of organizing a unified market for capital. The nation-state allows for a politically unified um, territory in ways that the feudal powers that displaced could not do. It also provides a mechanism um, that can create the sort of infrastructure that capital needs um, to be productive. A central aspect of this consolidation of the nation-state has been the creation of national languages, and literally the creation of national languages, languages that, that are then imposed on, on a particular population primarily through school. In other words, the standard academic forms of language um, that are taught in school are not you know, really similar to any language we actually speak in our daily lives. To talk about the U.S., um, we all went to school in the U.S., those of us who did, for 12 years in English class, but 85% of American kids in school speak English. So why do you go to English class if you already speak English, right? Um, that's what school does. Um, so moreover, the, the creation of the nation states to, to meet the needs of capital has led to a certain formula that really is common uh, across, across um, the capitalist nation state. One state is meant to, to, to correspond to one nation, to one people, to one culture, to one language, to one religion, to one set of customs. That's the norm. Um, and of course, an entire history of these distinct cultural traditions is invented, reaching far back into time, uh, which again we learn about in school. Um, so both of the political unity provided by the nation-state and the unified standardized language and the set of uh, civic and religious and nationalist beliefs about a given you know, national group all help capital to reach um, the home market. As Lenin quoted, quote, unity and unimpeded development of language are the most important conditions for genuinely free and extensive commerce on a scale commensurate with modern capitalism. For a free and broad grouping of the population in all its various classes, as lastly, for the establishment of a close connection between the market and each and every proprietor, big and little, and between seller and buyer. The second part of Lenin's theory has to do with the second phase of development I mentioned before about the, quote, growing frequency of international intercourse, when capitalism begins to spread and impose itself across the globe. The spread of capitalism internationally through colonialism and imperialism means that there are, in fact, two types of nationalism that socialists need to account for. The first is the nationalism of the oppressor nation. The nationalism of the oppressor nation plays two roles. Ex externally, it, la it allows for the oppression of other nations and peoples. Think of all the, all the baggage around the white man's burden or around the civilizing mission in terms of um, early colonial adventures. Um, and internally, it blurs class divisions within the oppressor nation between working people and the ruling class, and thus makes it easier for the ruling class to maintain its power at home. Again, think of what happened in this country after 9-11, the whole slogan of United We Stand, as if all Americans had the same interest in going after the terrorists or what have you. Now the second is the nationalism of the oppressed. The second kind of nationalism is that of the oppressed. A nationalism that grows up in resistance to colonial and nationalist imperial, uh, imperial, colonial and imperialist oppression. Excuse me. The central idea of this was that this nationalism of the oppressed, whether held by capitalists, the middle classes, workers, peasants, what have you, 
could have a democratic content to it that could lead to only one political conclusion, and that is the right of oppressed nations to self-determination, where self-determination could only ever mean the right to secede, to separate from the oppressor nation. The third major contribution that Lenin made um, was about how socialists should relate to these two different types of nationalism, that of the oppressor nation and that of the oppressed nation. Now it's here where Lenin showed um, remarkable agility and dexterity in, 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 in his thinking and writing. Within the aggressor state, the, the main task for socialists um, was to defend the right to self-determination for all oppressed national minorities. Only in doing this could uh, working people within the oppressor nation break with the chauvinism um, towards oppressed nationalities that allowed the ruling class to dominate both groups. Here, Lenin's argument is similar to Marx and Engels I talked about before. He asked, can a nation be free if it oppresses other nations? It cannot. The interests of the freedom of the Russian population require a struggle against such oppression. The Black Hundreds, which were far-right nationalists and NSMites, um, deliberately foster these prejudices and encourage them. The Russian bourgeoisie tolerates or condones them. The Russian proletariat cannot achieve its own aims or clear the road to its freedom without systematically countering these prejudices. Now, relating to the national question within the oppressed nation was something altogether um, different. First, Lenin argued that defending the right to self-determination, that is, um, to separate from the oppressing nation, was not the same thing as demanding that separation in fact. But that might seem a little contradictory. Um, and in fact, it's really one of those points that's been used to, to go after the Marxist position on the national question for some time as an abstraction or mere words in a party platform, what have you. But Lenin recognizes that, the, like I said, the right to secede does not mean always fighting for secession um, concretely. He argues, quote, the closer a democratic state system is to complete freedom to secede, the less frequent and the less ardent will the demand for separation to be in practice. Instead, each point of national oppression needs to be assessed on its own terms in order to figure out if secession were in fact a step towards greater democratization and an advance in the working class struggle or not. The terms of that assessment are this, quote, insofar as the bourgeoisie of the oppressed nations fights the oppressor, we are always, in every case, and more strongly than anyone else, in favor. For we are the staunchest and most uh, uh, consistent enemies of oppression. But insofar as the bourgeoisie of the oppressed nation stands for its own bourgeois nationalism, we stand against. We fight against the privileges of the oppressor nation and do not in any way condone strivings for privileges on the part of the oppressed nation. Poland is, again, a, a, an excellent example in this particular case. As I've already discussed, self-determination for Poland was a central issue uh, facing revolutionary socialists from Marx right through Lenin. And the debate around Poland uh, between Luxembourg and Lenin is probably the most clarifying moment in terms of a Marxist approach to the national question. But that position is not fixed in time or static. Um, for example, by the time of World War I, the Polish ruling classes had openly sided with German militarism um, during the war as their primary strategy for getting out from underneath the yoke of Russian czarism. So in that context, to side with Polish self-determination in Poland would mean siding with the, German with the German military, both of which had to be denounced. The fourth thing I'll say about, uh, is probably to me the, the, the most important thing about Lenin's distinction between the nationalism of the oppressor and of the oppressed. And it's also the least intuitive, probably. Um, in other words, maintaining this distinction is in fact the central strategy to ensure international unity among working people um, from various national backgrounds. Even though Lenin was adamant about defending the right of all uh, oppressed national minorities to self-determination, he in fact was not exalting one national group uh, or one culture or one language over another. 
supporting the right to self-determination could not mean socialists identifying with one nation or culture over another. Here, Lenin is, is clearly rejecting Bauer's approach, the whole cultural national uh, autonomy approach. Um, with respect to oppressed nationalities, he argued rightly that it should matter little to workers of the oppressed um, Sorry, the oppressed nationality, whether their exploitation as workers came at the hand of their own bosses or um, those of the oppressing nation. But the emphasis on the right to self-determination was for Lenin in a way, um, no matter again how counterintuitive it may seem, to actually bring workers of different nationalities together. By supporting unconditionally the right of oppressed nations to self-determination, workers in the oppressor nation could begin to earn the trust of workers in the oppressed nation. But by, recogni by recognizing the limited and contradictory nature of bourgeois nationalism within the oppressed nation, its workers can maintain their political independence. Lenin summarized the argument like this, quote, to throw off the feudal yoke, all national oppression and all privileges enjoyed by any particular nation or language, this is the imperative duty of the proletariat as a democratic force, and is certainly in the interests of the proletarian struggle, which is obscured and retarded by bickering on the national question. But to go beyond these strictly limited and definite historical limits in helping bourgeois nationalism means betraying the proletariat and siding with the bourgeoisie. Combat all national oppression? Yes, of course. Fight for any kind of national development for, quote, national culture in general? Of course not. The proletariat, far from undertaking to uphold the national development of every nation, on the contrary, warns the masses against such illusions, stands for the fullest development of capitalist intercourse, and welcomes every kind of assimilation of nations except that which is founded on force or privilege. The fifth thing I'll say about um, explaining Lenin's take on the national question relates to um, practicality. Um, pragmatism is always the bugbear um, in socialist politics. Right? People raise that against socialist politics all the time. Um, Luxembourg had, had, had raised um, the issue of being practical too in pretty stark terms. In fact, she attacked the right to self-determination as a utopian demand. And like I said earlier, many critics of Lenin approach um, of his approach, rather, to the national question have really harped on this idea that the right to self-determination, um, even if it's not an actual fight for secession. In fact, however, Lenin's theoretical position on the national question and self-determination had immensely important practical consequences. Even when the, the right to self-determination did not equate to actually advocating for it, this did not mean that there were um, not still concrete demands that socialists should pursue um, to challenge nationalism. And, and actually, um, Lenin was clear, clearest about these arguments when he was talking about schools. In a number of his writings from 1914 to 1917, he analyzes at some length the population of schools in St. Petersburg in terms of the national background of their, of their students, of the pupils. Lenin recognizes the vast multinational and multilingual composition of these schools, even in the heart of Russia, and that was not just in the outlying areas um, of, of the oppressed nations themselves. In his analysis of schools in Russia, Lenin reaches an ongoing polemic against Bauer um, and, and his call for cultural national autonomy. By contrast, Lenin denounces any efforts to establish Russian as the official language of the empire or its schools. He calls for multinational and for multilingual curricula within the same school as a tool for integration and for overcoming national barriers. He cites as, as potential strategies, quote, the hiring at state expense of special teachers of Hebrew, Jewish history, and the like, of the provisions of state-owned premises for lectures for Jewish, Armenian, or Romanian children, or even for the one Georgian child in, the, in one area of St. Petersburg. 
Elsewhere, Lenin calls for state provision of materials, curricula, and instructors in Georgian, again, for that one Georgian child. Um, his argument is based on the following principle, quote, to preach the establishment of special national schools for every so-called national culture is reactionary. But under real democracy, it is quite impossible to ensure instruction, pardon me, it's quite possible to ensure instruction in the native language and native history and so forth without splitting up the schools according to nationality. And elsewhere he wrote, quote, whoever does not recognize and champion the equality of nations and languages and does not fight against all national oppression and inequality is not a Marxist. He's not even a Democrat. By coupling formal legal equality among various nationalities with concrete affirmative um, provisions and strategies, the goal is to overcome national divisions and the animosity they engender so as to create conditions for cultural and linguistic integration on a free and voluntary basis. Only by maintaining this distinction could, and I would argue can, socialists challenge national or linguistic oppression while contributing to the creation of an international culture. The final thing I'll say about Lenin's theory on the national question has to do with self-determination as a principle, and self-determination as part of the revolutionary process. Um, just as Marx had responded to uh, rebellions in India and China and began to see the revolutionary potential in national liberation struggles, so too did Lenin's understanding of self-determination move from simply the correct political you know, position um, to combat oppression to one that could play an important role in developing world revolution. For example, in 1916 he wrote, um, the socialist revolution may flare up not only through some big strike, street demonstration, um, or hunger riot, or a military insurrection or colonial revolt, but also as a, a result of a political crisis, or in connection with a referendum on the secession of an oppressed nation. In other words, national, liber national liberation struggles have their own political and economic dynamic um, to them that can spur revolutionary struggle elsewhere. While national liberation struggles have this potential, it can only be realized if workers in the struggling ma nation maintain their political independence from their own local bourgeoisie. The point is not uh, national independence in the name of a new, new bourgeois power, but rather national independence to challenge imperial power and to allow for the free unity of working people across national lines. Of course, by the time the Russian Revolution had been defeated and Stalin had taken power, these, I think, nimble and agile approaches to self-determination and the national question had been replaced with rigid sloganeering. Now, the development of socialism in one country trumped any struggle with, within Russia against chauvinism or national oppression. Russian was declared the official language of, of, the, of the Soviet Union. Stalin opposed the formal policy of Russification, both linguistically and culturally, across the USSR. In terms of foreign policy, the principle of self-determination was subordinated to um, whatever dictates came from Moscow, which is to say that working-class struggle in the oppressed nations was subordinated to the political and economic demands of their own bourgeoisie. I don't have time to really get into those debates. So people should go, should actually get the talks that had to happen today on China and on permanent revolution. And the one, go to the one tomorrow on France Fanon um, to learn more about that. So in the few minutes I have left, let me just say that um, it's one thing, I think a pretty easy thing, to kind of go back and read the classical Marxist stuff um, and get um, a really good understanding of the national question. Um, but it's another thing altogether to apply that theory to today. Each of the sources I've relied on um, a lot for this talk, um, go through the classical stuff really clearly, but then get their own applications of, the, of those ideas to today, to today wrong in their own way. I think even Chris Harmon's excellent um, overview of the national question from 1993 or 4 um, gets the emphasis wrong about the political potential in the national question nowadays. To be sure, Harmon was writing only two years after the Soviet Union had collapsed 
and a, and a distinctly reactionary type of nationalism grew up to replace uh, in, in, I guess in the vacuum, I guess you'd say, in the Caucasus and of course in the Balkans where a, a, a horrific war between Serb, Croat, and Bosnian um, was raging at the time. And he also was trying to make sense of the fusion of cultures internationally in a world where English is dominant uh, and where U.S. pop culture spreads internationally, uh, but not just because U.S. is an imperial power. He's trying to make sense of that. Um, I think he's right to, to, to be critical efforts to defend one's culture against the tide of English and, and uh, U.S. pop culture in the name of cultural purity or tradition. And he's right to criticize this defense of one's culture when it comes to uh, um, from the political right and when it comes to the political left. That as many progressive anti-imperialists have sort of given up on the idea of actual anti-imperialist struggle um, and replaced it with efforts to nurture and foster traditional culture of whatever variety. At the same time, though, I think he goes too far in the other direction. He writes, for example, quote, For the massive workers of the urban middle class, patterns of work, styles of dress, forms of recreation, forms of sexual relations, and the rest of it, um, and the rest, increasingly cut across the old cultural barriers. Languages remain different, but what they, what they say is increasingly the same, end quote. That's all true. Um, it's all, I'll, I'll take Arizona as an example. It's true that people in Arizona wear similar clothes, um, and, and whether they're Anglo or Chicano. And it's true that English and Spanish are saying similar things because the lies people lead are increasingly similar. Um, but those similarities, those similarities have done nothing to stop the attack on immigrants or to stem the tide of anti-immigrant racism and American chauvinism that has flared up there. And downplaying the importance of language would mean to miss the role that language has played in the fomenting anti-immigrant racism in Arizona. We all know, but that's be 1070. Um, but it's a culmination of a decade of attacks on, immig on immigrants in Arizona. But most of those attacks actually centered on, on Spanish in school and in the state. Throughout the 80s and 90s, Arizona tried to establish English as, as the official language of the state um, in response to what they thought was a, a wave of Spanish um, that threatened um, the English language. In 2000, voters outlawed bilingual led. Um, and, and uh, imposed an English-only model for helping um, uh, students to learn English in school. In 2006, another voter referendum criminalized teaching English to adult immigrants, to undocumented adult immigrants, and required all students to prove their legal status just to enroll in college or university. And as people will likely know, after S uh, SB 1070 was passed, the State Board of Education outlawed ethnic studies um, in K-12 schools and began to enforce a policy that calls for removing teachers with, quote, a heavy accent from English language classes. Therefore, a central component of the ongoing attack on immigrants in Arizona has been an attack on Spanish and bilingual ed. Being too, mm, I don't know, blasé or quick and dirty about the potential for language to galvanize political activity and resistance is, I think, a mistake. So I'll close by recapping my main arguments. Um, one, understanding and debating the national question has not only not been a secondary or neglected topic in the Marxist tradition, but instead represents one of the richest theoretical and practical arguments we stand in. Two, the Marxist position developed from Marx and Engels to Lenin to today by responding to real-world events, making sense of them and trying to argue the next step forward in working-class struggle. In that sense, the Marxist tradition on the national question has been anything but dogmatic, but instead an effort to use Marxism as a guide to action. Three, the national question requires distinguishing between the nationalism of the oppressor and that of the oppressed. And based on that distinction, the only uh, uh, political position that can, in fact, lead to greater democracy and to greater international um, working class unity is the right of oppressed nations to self-determination. 
for how socialists relate to self-determination depends on where they are. For socialists and the oppressor nation, this means unqualified support for oppressed nationalities to secede. For socialists and oppressed nations, it means assessing the direction of the national liberation struggle so that the working class remains um, at all times politically independent. Finally, um, self-determination recognizes the uh, revolutionary potential of national liberation struggles, both in terms of challenging imperialism and fomenting revolutionary struggle elsewhere. So let Lenin have the final word. He wrote, To imagine that social revolution is conceivable without revolts by small nations in the colonies and in Europe, without revolutionary outbursts by sections of the petty bourgeoisie with all its prejudices, without a movement of the politically non-conscious proletarian and semi-proletarian masses against oppression by the landowners, the church, and the monarchy against oppression, national oppression, etc. To imagine all that is to repudiate social revolution. Thanks. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.